0: A mystery is something of which we know that it is, but we do not know how it is, what it is, or how it came to be. This intrigued Charles Dickens and Charles Collins, his son-in-law, who were fascinated by a true story of a man accused of murder. And they set it down for us to tell you today. Whether it's a tale of the supernatural or the unnatural, I shall leave to you. That man! That man! Who? The man who has just come into the witness box. You have some objection to our selecting him as one of your jurors? At all hazards. Challenge him. But why? Don't ask. Challenge him, I say. My life may depend on it. Our mystery drama, Trial for Murder was originally written by Charles Dickens and Charles Collins and adapted especially for Mystery Theater by James Agate, Jr. and stars Paul Hecht. It is sponsored in part by Signoff, The Sinus Medicine, and Exlax. I'll be back shortly with Act One. Before we proceed, this is the only mystery story of its kind ever written by that extraordinary author Charles Dickens. Literary history has it. He wrote it with his son-in-law, Charles Collins, for a Christmas magazine over a hundred years ago. It is a tale that has never been explained and that has become a classic of mystery. Let the principal character, a writer called Charles, tell it. I suppose you might say it all began with that rope a gift to me from an admirer it was the rope from which Dick Turpin the famous highwayman was hanged until he was dead I had it in my hand that evening and was turning it over thinking of the life it had snuffed out wondering if it would inspire me to begin work on the new novel I slept badly that night and when I awoke, I was horrified to find I had knotted the rope tightly in my hands as if I had, during the night, strangled someone. Derek, will you see who's at the door? Oh, where is that man? Derek, there's someone at the front door. Well, oh, I'll have to get it myself. Well, good morning, well. Good morning, William. What time is it? It's uh, just ten. Well, you don't look too well. Uh, William, I detest to hear how badly I look in the morning, especially from an old friend like you. Oh, well, forgive me. Well, our plan was well taken. Which plan? I have just come from Everett and Sons, and they are delighted with our idea for the mystery novel, especially our working together. They like that short outline? Well, this morning's newspaper made our idea incredibly topical. Have you seen it? You mean our idea of the murder victim having his throat slit by a razor? What? That really happened? Ear to ear. Oh. When I showed the headline to Arthur Everett, he was astounded that fact and fiction could come that close. Here, have a look, Charles. Read it. Yes, yes. I will, I will. Hmm. Well, I am pleased that Everett wishes us to begin writing, but if you don't mind, not today. Oh, perfectly understandable. Uh, Suppose I stop by tomorrow at the same time. Oh, keep the newspaper. You'll be quite amazed at how close our inventiveness and the truth happen to be. (laughs) I read the news story of the murder twice, three times. The deceased had been discovered in a bedroom, lying halfway between the end of the bed and the bathroom. Like the character in our proposed mystery novel, he had money, an inheritance, didn't work for a living, and lived alone. A razor or a very sharp knife had taken his life. Accident while shaving? Suicide? (laughs) Not likely, according to the police, for no weapon had been found. Scotland Yard had been called in, and they said it was murder. No doubt whatsoever. Uh, Inspector, I've been asked to lend whatever assistance you need. Oh, yes, they they told me you'd be here. Harker, Metropolitan Police. I found the body. Uh, Harker, I'd like you to make inquiries as to the friends, acquaintances, etc., of the deceased. Does he have a place of work? What tradesman does he deal with? Does he have a bank account and so forth? Well, it should be done, Inspector. And then report back to me at the yard. I lay odds, Harker. This is a simple, open and shut case of robbery. What makes you say that, sir? Mm, The experience of years. Either the victim or the murderer knew one another or they did not. If they knew one another, there could be many motives. Jealousy, imagined wrong, actual wrong, revenge, that kind of thing. It's that area I'm asking you to explore. Right, sir. On the other hand, had they known one another, why would the apartment of the victim be in such disarray? Is it likely that after slitting the throat of the deceased, that the murderer would take the time to ransack the place, knowing that at any moment he might be discovered? Oh, yes, yes. You have a point, there, sir. Oh, no. Much more likely is it that the perpetrator was intent upon robbery. His victim entered unexpectedly... The murderer took a razor, killed and left. And uh, the suicide theory, mm, the kind of nonsense the press would print. What month is this Hawker? Uh, mm. November? Sir. Exactly. The victim was wearing an overcoat. I'd say he just returned from outside. One does not shave in an overcoat. No. One does not entertain friends in an overcoat. So be good enough to get me whatever information you can, Hawker, so that we can narrow down one aspect of the case. For my part, there are several clues worth following, and I shall be on the trail of that scent. Mm. How uh, do you feel like working today, Charles? Uh, in a moment, William. Will you come away from that window, William? William, there's something out there. Come, come here quickly. Come to the window. Well, what is it, Arthur? Well, do you see those two men on the opposite side of Piccadilly going going from west to east? Where? What two men? William, there. One man just passing the lamppost. Uh, and about 15 feet behind him, another man. Following him, see? Look, the man in front is looking back over his shoulder. He knows he's being followed. But there's such a crowd. I. No, I don't, I don't see your two men, Charles. The man behind, the second man, has raised his right hand menacingly. Look. I... Oh, yes. Yes, I see him now. The one with the... He's got a very white face, hasn't he? Oh, thank heaven you see him. I thought I was having delusions. Now, do you see the man he's following? Well, I, I... I'll tell you what strikes me peculiar, Charles. Nobody in Piccadilly is paying the slightest attention to those two. It's as if nobody sees them. The man in front crosses in front of the people around them. He, he, he started to run now. Yes, and the, the other one right after it. There they go, around the corner. Hmm. Something so mysterious about those men. Oh, yes, mysterious. That's the word. Well, oh, I'll never forget their faces. I I can tell you that. Yes, especially the second man. You know you know the phrase that comes to my mind you know what the phrase is the walking death yes his face was more transparent than white like a face of impure wax oh whew. what a strange feeling has come over me like like a chill Yes, I think a breath of air is what we need now oh yes yes I'll, I'll second that those two men down there have knocked the stuffing out of me actually I can't imagine why. What did you call the second man? The the one who was chasing the first. You mean the way he looked? Uh, Yeah, I remember. The Walking Death. The next day passed smoothly. William and I started our book, each doing half a dozen pages, then exchanging what we had written. Thursday and Friday also went well. The book was gathering momentum. Saturday, William generally spends the morning with his son in Hyde Park. He didn't come to the house until three o'clock. I had slept late and badly. Uh, it, it must be your diet, Charles. You're eating the wrong food. I saw the room where the murder was committed last night, William. You did what? I saw the room. Every detail of which is imprinted indelibly on my mind. You mean the murder case of the man who's throat was cut with a razor? Yes, yes. The bed, the chest of drawers, the door to the bathroom, the carpet, all very, very clearly. I can even tell you the colors. You mean you dreamt all this? Yes. Look, look, old man, there's been a fair bit of reporting in the newspaper. William, since that first day when you showed me the headlines, I've purposely not read one word about the case. But, but our novel, now you can't discard that. It takes off from the same premise, almost the same victim. Your subconscious took over, so you dreamt. I, I can't explain it. It it was more than a dream. The colors of everything were so vivid. Well, was the body of the victim lying there? Oh, thank heavens, no. The room was empty, but uh, there was blood, red blood. And uh, you, you're sure it was that bedroom? As if I'd been actually transported to the spot. Oh, well. well, you are in a state... No, I uh, I don't think we'll get much writing done this afternoon. Well, you're not going to leave, are you? Oh, no, 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 of course not. I, I don't like to see you so disturbed. Oh, I almost forgot. I uh, received a summons last night to serve in a jury at a forthcoming session of the Central Criminal Court. Oh, have you done jury duty before? Oh, no, no, I haven't. I suppose I could get off, because I, I don't like the idea of interrupting our work now that we've gotten off to such a good start. Well, on the other hand, Charles, to, to be right on the spot during some trial or other might be a, a very good way to get first-hand impression. First-hand of, of, of what? Oh, of how the wheels of justice grind away. Oh. What's this? What's what? Oh, well, don't you open your letters, old chap. Oh, well, frankly, I was so disturbed that when my man brought up my lunch tray, I didn't touch the food and, and I didn't look at them. I... Well, this envelope has a, a familiar look to it. Here Here, open it. That's right. Uh, well, this, this is incredible. It's also a request to appear for jury duty at the Central Criminal Court. Talk about coincidence. You and I live two miles apart at quite different addresses. Yet, within days, both of us receive a summons for jury duty. Yes, I, I know, but... Wait, I... I haven't finished. The very time you and I are starting on a crime novel which ends in a trial at a criminal court. Well, uh, Now, I'd call that a coincidence. According to the poet Schiller, there is no such thing. It's all preordained. He says what seems to us the merest accident springs from the deepest source of destiny. Well, uh, if accepting this demand to serve on a jury is going to make you unhappy, you're right. Don't do it. I'd like to be there purely as a matter of research. That's out of the question, William. Not now. You may go, of course. Charles? You seem to fear something, and I don't know what it is. Oh, no, it's, it's, it's not fear. Oh. It's just an accident of faith we're both called to serve at the same time. Why make so much of it? Well, call it a presentiment. A feeling I have... <gasps> Good Lord. Good Lord, William. Look. Look behind you. We were in my study. The door to my bedroom opened, and a man looked in. Very earnestly and mysteriously... He beckoned to me. I recognized the man immediately. He was the second man of the two we had seen from my window, walking along Piccadilly. The man with the upraised arm. The man with the face of wax. What is it, Charles? Oh, your bedroom door is closing. That's that's all I see. It's probably a draft catcher. Stay here, William. I'm going in there. We'll see... Well, no, I, I, I thought, William, I, I thought I saw him. No, no, it, it's true. I, I did see him. Dead, he now. Don't you believe me, Charles? I. Oh no. Oh, I know exactly what you saw. It was, it was that dead man, the murdered man. Why did he come here? Why? <laughs> the language of the supernatural, a word meaning not against nature, but above it. Unexplainable happenings are conveyed to the rest of us by people called mediums. They have the ability to stand between two worlds, our world as we know it, and the world of the unknown. So it is entirely possible that our two writers, Charles and William, by the very sensitivity of their talent, are both mediums what they see, and how they will deal with it, we shall learn in greater detail when I return with Act Two. A word about Charles Dickens before we continue. It's a mistake to think of him only as the benign reporter of the social evils of his England. Not only ghosts of Christmas Eve came from his pen, but time and again, he'll bring us a haunted man. A man of guilty conscience. A man battling evil. A man under a curse. Now, our tale moves forward, and so do the investigators at Scotland Yard. We have our man. And as I told you, Harker, robbery was the motive. One doesn't approach... Ransacked rooms, drawers open, contents thrown about, and expected to be anything else. Uh, what is the main evidence, Inspector? What do you suppose? Mm. Various articles of the victims which he had acquired? Matter of fact, no. One article only which he claims to have found in the hall. The murder weapon. Oh. The knife? The razor? The razor. Found it in the perpetrator's bathroom. He Claims, of course, it's his own. It's been tested. No No traces of either blood or fingerprints. Everything washed clean, but, but two facts make his guilt certain. One, he had two razors, one with a metal handle, and the other, which he claimed also was his, with an ivory handle. However it happens, the razor with the ivory handle matches exactly other shaving implements in the victim's bath. Ivory shaving mug, brush, and comb. Oh, we have him all right. Uh, you said two facts, Inspector. The man we've arrested lived upstairs. In the same house? In the same house. Well, uh, you'll, you'll forgive me for saying so, Inspector, but I don't think I, I'd call this quite an open and shut case. Well, perhaps so, Harker. It may still be somewhat open, but we shall see what develops at the trial to shut it. <laughs> The morning I was due to make an appearance at the Central Criminal Court, I awoke with a sensation of ominous dread. I was still uncertain whether I would volunteer myself for the jury or not. I couldn't get the incredible picture of the man in my bedroom beckoning me out of my mind. What did it mean? As I got out of bed, I reached underneath, and there, curled about my slippers, was the hanging rope the rope that had put an end to the life of Dick Turpin, the highwayman. I pulled back my hand as if it had been a rattlesnake. Now, (coughs) hello, Charles. (laughs) You decided to meet me here outside of Old Bailey after all. Oh, this fog is miserable, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, 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 it really is. Now, won't you tell me what prompted you to accept the invitation to sit on the jury? The reason? (coughs) The reason? I'll tell you why I'm here. We're writing a crime novel about a murder which has recently happened in real life. So a few days in court can only help. Good. What I've been saying all along. Ah. Ah, thank goodness. There goes the signal for us to enter. This London fog is too horrible. Gentlemen... You are here for jury selection? Uh, yes, we are. Right. Follow me. Uh, glad to. Yes. Pretty bad out there this morning, isn't it? Yes. I can hardly see your hand in front of your face. Ah. It's better. <laughs> At least the fog cannot follow us into the law courts. <laughs> well, uh, what do we do now? Uh, will you gentlemen kindly be seated upon the bench against the wall? When your name is called, you'll step forward and be assigned to one of today's trials. We don't seem to be the only ones called for these sessions. I wonder what cases are being heard. I brought along a notebook to jot down my impressions firsthand. Mm -hmm. And I must say, one would have hoped that English jurisprudence could be carried out in a a cleaner, healthier atmosphere. Silence, please. I will ask all prospective jurors to refrain from talking. Uh, You, sir, the gentleman of the notebook, no writing, no reading, I beg you. Your complete silent attention while awaiting the pleasure of the court. An hour passed. William and I and the other gentlemen called for jury duty... sat like mute tailor's dummies on the bench. William was called, given a direction, and he disappeared down a hallway. Presently, I was assigned a courtroom. And when I entered, imagine my great surprise... To find myself called to the very case That had haunted my dreams and my waking hours The man Murdered with a razor Charles You here too? Yes, I pray I shan't be selected for this jury But why not? For our book, this very case would be invaluable I have a terrible premonition about it, that's all Look, look, they've put a man to the bar Yes, I know, the murderer Well, Well, how do you know? I recognize him But don't you? Good Lord, I do. It's the first man we saw going down Piccadilly, followed by the other with the waxen face. Is this man the murderer? The accused will please stand before the bar, and as each juror is called, his attorney will signal yea or nay, approval or disapproval of that juror, until the selection of the 12 jurors has been accomplished. Bailiff, you may begin to call the names. <laughs> was called and accepted. When my name was given, I stepped into the box. The prisoner, who had been looking at each prospective juror with no sign of concern, suddenly became violently agitated and signaled his attorney. That man! That man! Who? That man, Charles, somebody who's just come into the witness box. You have some objection to our selecting him? At all hazards. Challenge him. But why? Don't ask. Don't ask. Do you know him? Challenge him, I say. My life may depend on it. Nonsense. I've investigated his background. He's exactly the kind of man who will listen with understanding to our defense. No, no, I say no. If you wish me to conduct your defense, you must be guided by my opinion. This man is a writer, a broad-minded, imaginative... And, in my opinion, the most sympathetic juror from your point of view. The prisoner will stand before the bar. The accused has been charged with murder by willfully and maliciously giving the deceased, with a razor knife, one mortal wound on the throat on the 4th of November, of which wound he instantly died. (laughs) I was in court the day the charge was read. For not only was I selected for that jury, but I was chosen foreman. William, as it happened, was seated beside me. On the second morning of the trial, after evidence had been taken for two hours, I turned to him... You must what is not it, be swayed by. i counting the members of the jury. Yes, yes, I saw if you. Several times, is no slowly and evidence, carefully. You should so choose ever like? is the matter with you. One too order. many, that's what's the matter. I make it one, one too many. One. I counted thirteen. Oh, Charles, I, I don't know what to make of you. Will one you oblige me, please, William, by counting briefly. us? I am count. Uh, cast upon veracity mm. and conclusions. Yes, why, we are thirteen. There must be no. No, 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 it's not possible. missing. No, a 12. But are you sure? But well, I'm quite sure. It's strange. When first you look about it, it does seem like 13 jurors. Yet, when I count off one by one, I can only find 12. As in all murder trials, the jury was sequestered. We were housed at the London Tavern, and Ayrton slept in one large room under the eye of an officer of the law. His name was Mr. Harker. His bed was drawn against the door. And On the second night, after the lights had been put out, seeing he was still awake and sitting on the edge of his bed, I went to him. Uh, not sleepy, eh, sir? Well, it's my first experience at a murder trial, Mr. Harker. I, I am a bit unnerved. Uh, I have worked on many a murder and attended many a trial. And I can tell you this, sir. You never get used to it. Yes. Well, one of our jurors happens to be a friend of mine, a fellow writer, so I, I don't feel quite so alone and strange. Really? Well, that is a coincidence. Yes, he's, he's taking us more in his stride than I am. Uh, For him, this trial is merely basic research. Well, if you don't mind my saying so, if we keep talking, we may disturb the other gentlemen of the jury who wish to sleep. Lord in heaven. What is it, Mr. Harkin? You're shaking. Uh, over there. Uh, by the window. Who is that? Oh. Oh, yes. Oh, why do you say yes? Do you see someone? Uh, there, there, there's no one there now. Oh. <laughs> I thought I, for, for a moment we had a 13th juryman without a bed. <laughs> uh, but I see now it's, it, 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 it's the moonlight. William. (coughs) What? Oh, Charles, haven't you gone to bed yet? Let me talk to you for a moment. All right. William, Mr. Harker saw our old friend. Yes, the second man going down Piccadilly. The man who appeared in my flat. Harker saw him here. Just now, a few minutes ago. Well, what does it mean? It means the ghost of the murdered man will not let us alone. He's here. Well, yes, I I certainly shan't be able to go to sleep now. The rest of the jurors are managing quite well. The ten of them are fast asleep William do you see him Uh, uh, yes oh yes I see him or or it I I prefer to to think of it as an it look at it standing over there beside the pillow of that juror and now it's moving to the next bed and just standing there staring down I'm certainly glad I'm not alone seeing that apparition every juror it's stopping by the bed of every single juror yes but But not Harker's. Or mine, or yours. Look. It's gone. It's disappeared. Did you see where it went? Well, as though up some invisible stairs, right out of that high window where the moonlight's coming in. If... If it is the spirit of the murdered man, Charles, what in heaven's name is it trying to tell us? The next morning at breakfast... It seems that every single one of the jurors, except Harker, William and myself, had dreamed of the murdered man. On the fifth day of the trial, as the case for the prosecution was drawing to a close, there came a new development. A miniature portrait of the murdered man had been found on the person of the prisoner when he was arrested it was put into evidence. Since the miniature purporting to be that of the deceased has been placed into evidence... Founded in his identified by the housekeeper in May. What do you say to that, Charles? Pretty so conclusive, the I would say. Up Good to Good Lord, will you Look over there. That figure now, okay. walking forward from the back of the courtroom. Our, Our murdered spirit. spirit. Yes, but no. No choice. one sees it. Not a soul, but us. Look. It's taken the miniature right out of the hands of the bailiff. Oh. The dead man is walking over here towards you, Charles. Good foreman of the jury, take this locket, this miniature of myself, and examine it well. I was younger then, and my face was not so drained of blood as you see me now. Unquestionably, only a Charles Dickens could have conjured up such a diabolic end to Act Two, a slain spirit possessing the minds of our two jurors, the accusing presence of the murdered man haunting the foreman of the jury. For what reason? To unbalance his mind or to balance his judgment? Very shortly, I shall return with answers to this extraordinary mystery in Act Three. commissioned to write a murder mystery have an actual vision of the murderer and his victim. The victim pursuing the murderer down a wide London street. Almost before the writers have begun their work they are called as jurors to a case strikingly similar to their planned book. The spirit of the victim will not leave them alone. Appears every day in court and every night when they go to bed. The murder trial affected William and me quite differently. Surreptitiously, he spent a good part of every evening making notes about what we had seen and heard, completely objectively, as though he were only an observer, not a participant. I couldn't take this murder case so casually. When I did not see the apparition at night, my dreams would be filled with knives, razors... And often as not that rope that had been given me, that hanging rope. Then came the seventh day of the trial, and before us stood the attorney for the defense. Much has been made by the prosecution of an ivory-handled razor in the possession of the defendant. But yet, not one shred of evidence has been offered to prove it was that instrument that inflicted the fatal wound. Our contention is that the wound was self-inflicted. The deceased, not yet dead, had a change of heart, crawled to the open window, tried to call for help, gave signal by tossing the blade out the window, and then, suffering much loss of blood, expired. Expired, we say, by his own hand. Anyone could have picked up the blade in the street, and no one has yet come forth with it. I pass this photograph of the deceased among the jurors for their study, asking you to notice the angle of the wound straight across. It's the same man. I can hardly look at this photograph. And it's here. The apparition has just walked over to where the defense attorney is standing. Yes, I see it. William, can you turn your head without too many noticing? Can you see? Do, do do any of the other jurors see it standing there? Uh, none that I can tell. Right, here, William, pass this photograph along. Oh, I really don't feel well at all. What's the ghost of the deceased doing now? It is standing right at the defense attorney's elbow. Now it's moving its right hand across the windpipe. Now it's moving its left hand in a kind of sawing motion. What do you suppose it means? Oh, I think it is demonstrating how virtually impossible it is to have killed oneself that way, producing a straight cut across the throat. Hmm. The pity of it is that you and I are the only ones who can see this demonstration. No, no, not at all. I have no doubt that the victim is transmitting at this moment actual thoughts or ideas to the jurors as they study the photograph. What we can see I'm sure they can sense. The following day, the apparition began to make its presence known more strongly. Whenever it stood beside those giving evidence, suddenly they would falter. One of them, a street sweeper who said it was possible he had cleaned the street in front of the victim's house and tossed a knife into the refuse... That witness stopped and cried out he had had the most extraordinary cold chill. In the afternoon, the attorney for the defense continued to make his case for suicide. As his lordship admonished us all at the beginning of the trial, the chain of circumstantial evidence is as weak as its weakest link. The locket with the miniature found in the defendant's possession does not mean he was a robber or murderer. He tells us he found it on the stairs and did not know to whom it belonged. The defendant owns two razors. One metal-handled, one ivory-handled. Does that make him a murderer? William, look. The apparition has just put a hand on the defense attorney's shoulder. Uh, that, or or that a murder was was committed? However... (laughs) Excuse me, my lord... But the, the heat in the courtrooms a little oppressive. You uh, you may pause, counsel, for a moment. The uh, intense fog outside, the crowd of spectators in the court it, it does produce. Yes, I I, I, I should be all right. Just the right. understand? Yes, yes. Proceed when you feel the Oh, dear, I I seem to have mislaid my my handkerchief. The spectre is handing the attorney a mm-hmm. handkerchief. Ah, it, it, here it is. Uh, <clears throat> here, yes. I, I do regret the interruption. N- now, where was I? I... If anyone in London, any gentleman of any means might own more than one razor, surely it... it, it oh, dear. Uh, my lord, if you will forgive me for a moment, I, I should like to be seated and compose myself. There will be a recess of ten minutes. Court adjourned. occurred twice again later in the day when witnesses for the character of the defendant were called into the box. Each suddenly stammered, contradicted himself, and finally had to be excused. It was the doing of the apparition. The night of the ninth day of the trial, we were again locked up in the one large room of the London tavern. It has been entirely worthwhile, Charles. I've been able to make a note of practically every word spoken in court, as well as what's been said privately among the jurors. It'll give us a great advantage when we get back to writing our book. I don't know, William. I'm very tempted when this trial is over to tell the publishers that I cannot deliver the book. What? Tell Everett and Sons it's all off? They've already set us the advance. So we'll send it back. We can write a different book, just... Just not this one. Charles, I won't let you even consider that. You take this apparition much too seriously. You don't think it's incredible and, and bizarre? Well, I've, uh, I've taken quite a liking to the old thing, hovering about the court every day. <laughs> so I must say, if it were suddenly to disappear, then I think I should miss it. How can you joke about this? It's, it's beyond me. Ah, there is our friend. Well, it hardly ever comes over to us anymore. Look, there, across the room, bending over those four jurymen talking amongst themselves. Yes, of course, it makes absolute sense. Uh, well, why do you say that? For well, those four. William, haven't you noticed those four are inclined to acquit the accused? I've heard them argue about insufficient evidence. It, it's motioning for you, Charles. I believe it wants you to go over and join those four men. Excuse me, William. What well, I say? You're not going, are you? I must. Don't you see? I must do as it asks me. <laughs> The ghost of the murdered man wanted me to argue with the four jurors, to make them see the light of the evidence, to convince them that acquittal was wrong. I cannot explain why I felt compelled to do this, but as soon as I would join my brother jurymen, the apparition would disappear. Silence in the court. His Lordship, the Lord Chief Justice with the Crown, is about to make his charge to the jury. <coughs> Gentlemen of the jury last two stages of this case have now arrived. The stage of my discharging my duty, directing you on the facts and on the law, and yours to consider what your verdict should be when you retire to consider the case. But uh, before I do, there are one or two observations I wish to make. When a jury is summoned to try a case for murder, he... he... Uh, he, uh, uh, as I was saying... Is it dead? Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, he's standing right behind the judge, looking over his shoulder, helping him turn the pages of his notes. It is, uh, always an anxious time. As anxious for the judge as it is for the jury. Uh, whether it be a case of murder, whether it be a case of petty theft, your, your duty is the, is the same. It's all becoming too horrible to watch, William. I, I, I cannot bear it. That supernatural creature is making a mockery of this trial. It infects everything, everyone... Excuse me, gentlemen. For a few moments, I... I am somewhat oppressed by the closeness of the corporal. Charles, where are you going? Let me be. Let me alone. Is there uh, some disturbance in the jury box? Come back here, Charles. It does no good to run off. It's it's so hard to go on. Poor, poor... man. Yeah, 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 yeah. What's the matter, sir? I believe the foreman of the jury has also been affected by the closeness of the atmosphere. Uh, uh, Charles, do sit down at your place. I beg of you. Are you all right now, sir? Yes, yes, I. I suppose so. All right, William, I shall remain and see this to the end. I must now. I thought, uh, what was the trouble? Uh, the foreman, your lordship. But he's recovered. All right. To continue, you sometimes hear the phrase malice aforethought. It does not mean premeditated murder. All it means is was it intentional? The law is clear. If a person takes a deadly weapon to injure anybody else, then he is responsible for murder. For more than an hour, the judge charged us. I didn't feel well at all. The monotony of those ten days, the same judge, the accused in the dock, the choking fog outside the windows. It seemed as though I'd been foreman forever. And the spirit of the murdered man everywhere. Gentlemen of the jury... I shall leave you now and drop this door behind me. Should you have any questions which prevent you from reaching a verdict, will the foreman please come to the door and I shall open it. Uh, yes, Mr. Hucker, there may be some points we need clarified. Uh, I hope not many, but take all the time you need. Thank you. Gentlemen, I shall pass among you slips of paper. I wish each of you to write your personal verdict upon it and then we shall count the result and decide how to proceed from there. I ask that the court will please come to order. Gentlemen, have you agreed upon your verdict? We have, my lord. And do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of willful murder? Lord, we find the prisoner guilty of willful murder. Is that the verdict of you all? It is, my lord. Prisoner at the bar? You stand convicted of the crime of willful murder. Have you anything to say why the court should not give you judgment of death according to the law? Well, I, uh, I, uh, your lordship, uh, Do you wish to say anything? Well, I knew I was a doomed man when the foreman of the jury came into the box. The foreman? How so? My lord, I knew he would never let me off. I knew from the first day of the trial. I uh, uh, go on, go on, you may speak. Uh, Well, the night before I was arrested, as I lay in my bed in my rooms, somehow the foreman appeared to me in my bedside in the night and put a rope around my neck. I could make nothing more of what the prisoner said then than I can now. I do know at the moment we entered the courtroom, the nightmare presence of the murdered man stood beside the accused. As soon as I gave the verdict of guilty, it disappeared. And I have never seen it since. There it is. Charles Dickens and Charles Collins' strange tale of a trial for murder. The famous rope from which the highwayman Dick Turpin swung to his death, no longer exists. It is missing from the collection of infamous instruments of death at New Scotland Yard, but for a time, it played an extraordinary part in an extraordinary story of how a dead man avenged his own death. I shall return shortly. One writer in the English language has left us a more complete record of 19th century life than Charles Dickens. But his genius lies in an ability to weave fantasy and fact, reality and artifice, into a combination that rings true, that is completely believable. Pick up any one of his countless stories or his 15 novels. And you will be transported into a world that lives and breathes as does your world today. Our cast included Paul Hecht, Earl Hammond, Court Benson, and Robert Maxwell.